You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Aren't you grateful for the fact that our relationship with God is secured not by our hold of Him, uh, but His hold of us? And uh, I don't know, there are times where I have let go or I have been tempted to let go, but to He, uh, He does hold us fast. And I hope that to today you sense that, you rejoice in that, and that God will uh, move in your hearts uh, through that truth this morning. Genesis chapter 1 uh, it is our task today and our joy today to study on one word uh, that does not mean our sermon will be short or there will be brevity to our sermon. I'll do my best today. We were studying on God today, and uh, I trust that the God will use his word. I can't tell you how inadequate I feel every time I speak of our God, but especially when all I do is talk of who he is, um, he who is infinite, he who, as, the Sol- as Solomon said, he fills the heaven of heavens, you know, let alone filling this room or filling this time. But I'm excited to have the privilege to preach on uh, and teach on uh, our great God today. You may remain seated, but let's look at you at verse number one as we begin just to lay the foundation, then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. In verse number one of Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the rest of the Bible uh, is his story. It's him revealing himself. He's not just giving us human history. He's not just telling us how things began and where we messed it up and all the different narrative sections. It's all the backstory for us to know who he is. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study about him today. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the joy it is to be here today. Um, Lord, we pause before we enter into this study, uh, just acknowledging your, inf- your infinite um, just who you are on a range of different fronts, and Lord, our inadequacy to both speak to to these attributes as well as to apply them. And Lord, I pray that we would leave today uh, saying, what a God, what a God, what a glorious God that has revealed himself to us, and that it might not just be an abstract form, but we might be moved to change. Um, Lord, to respond to who you are by allowing that to change who and what and where we are. And I pray that it would make a dent, it would make a difference in our thinking, and that it would translate into the areas of influence that we have. We truly need your help in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just the other day, uh, one of our moms was sharing a dialogue with uh, one of their children, and the child said to the parent, uh, the child said this, uh, just out of nowhere, they're driving in the car. Have you ever been in the middle of like some random thing and then you have this deep conversation with your kid or grandkid and then as soon as it began, it's over and we're back to Cheetos or some random thing, you know? But uh, mom was sharing that they were driving the car and the son from the back seat said this question. Think about this question. Is God a want or a need? Is God a want or a need? And what would you say to that? How would you respond to that? And the mom just kind of in the moment said, I I think he's a need, the mom said, to which the son said, shouldn't he also be a want? And so they kind of paused for a moment, and the mom said, you're right, he should be a want and a need. Our God should be both a want and a need. Isn't it amazing how our kids and how each of us process and form a view of who God is? Every one of us in the room, whether you own this or not, you're a theologian. 
you have a set of beliefs and understandings and assumptions about God. From the youngest to the most senior believer in the room, the, the person that is not even in Christ is yet to receive Jesus as Savior, you have a view of God uh, that must be owned. And may I say today, as each of us are theologians, whether we recognize it or not, our view of God determines everything. Um, A.W. Tozer was once quoted as saying this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you hear the three letters, G-O-D, when you hear God, what comes to your mind, what comes from your heart? Uh, from our teenagers to our adults, anyone in the room today, what you think of when you hear the name God uh, says everything about who you are, where you're headed, and how you're living out your life before Him. And so we as a church, we as individuals need to have an accurate assessment and understanding of God. So the question today is this, in a day of myths representing God, how do we grow in our appreciation for who He is and how that should practically impact our lives. You'll notice in your notes today, we're going to look at four undeniable truths about God. If you accept the Word, the Bible, as the Word of God, these four undeniable truths must be believed and applied. First of all, number one, let's talk for a few minutes about the fact that God is real. Number one, God is real. Now, I just want to say this as we begin today, our inquiry or our pursuit of knowing God and understanding who God is in reality must not be speculative. I am not today going to satisfy your curiosity with, hey guys, let me just share with you some theories about how God works. Uh, our understanding of God must be squarely built upon what God has revealed to us about himself. And obviously we find that within the, uh, the constraints of, of Scripture. We must stay within uh, what it has revealed to us. And so these four uh, undeniable truths about God. First of all, God is real. And if you will, look back at the verse we began with today. It says this, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Can I give you a few things under that, not on the slides today, as it relates to the reality of God? First of all, there's reality of God in assumptions. The word there is assumptions. We assume, and God assumes here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, that he exists. Isn't it interesting the Bible does not begin with God arguing for his existence? He just assumes that we understand he exists. In the beginning, God he doesn't uh, define for us anything beyond that or give us any backstory to that. He assumes uh, that we know he exists. Uh, one man I was reading recently said this, if you do not believe the first verse of the Bible, including the word God that's found in verse 1, you're, not, you're rejecting the rest of the Bible. If we can't even establish that you believe in who God is and that God is, uh, all of the rest of the Bible falls apart. And so we see this assumption that we know he exists. Number two, go to Psalm 14. Let's spend a few moments in the book of Psalms. Psalm 14 in verse number one. And as we did last week with this being more of a topical series, instead of being in one primary text as we tend to be, we're looking at different texts briefly that support and guide our study of understanding of God. Psalm 14, and if you would please look at verse number one. Psalm 14, and if you would please verse number one. The psalmist says this in verse number one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Number two, so there's a reality in the assumptions of God. Number two, we see reality proven in intuition. The word there is intuition. 
uh, only a fool would say that there is no God. And, and we all know a few of those. And maybe at times that's been us, where we have been in denial as to the reality of God. But it is always the fool, not the wise one, the intuitive one, uh, who resists this truth. All the evidence points to the conclusive fact that universal faith in the existence of God is innate in mankind. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask, I don't know if you ever talked to an atheist, maybe at one point that was you, or maybe you're here today and that, that is where you're working through things. I don't even know if I believe there is a God or that God exists. One of the fascinating questions to me is this, is when you ask an atheist the following question, it really gains some traction. Here it is, when did you become an atheist? We're not born atheists. We are born, listen to me, brethren, visitor today, we are born with an understanding and an intuitiveness that all of this around us was made by someone. A, a cause, a, uh, an effect has to have a cause. A design has to have a designer. And so we see this intuition on the part of mankind. All right, go to Psalm 19. Just over a couple of pages, Psalm 19. And if you will, please look at verse number one. And there's a third kind of source of foundational facts or foundation that we can believe that God does exist. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Thirdly, jot this down, reality in logic. We see around us all that has been made, the uh, creation, and logically, there must be someone behind all of this. Aren't you amazed by just the, the it talks about day unto day and night unto night, just the cycle of things, how even in all the chaos of our world and how we've convoluted things, how God just keeps things going. Like, this doesn't happen by accident, and if we're honest and if we're thinking, uh, we must be willing to own that. I was reading the other day an article describing our sun, the sun of our solar system around which uh, our little solar system orbits. Listen to this description of the sun as it kind of logically directs us toward believing in a God who exists. The article said this, the sun's energy and violence almost defy imagination. It is a dense mass of glowing matter, a million times the volume of the earth, and it is, a, in, is in a permanent state of nuclear activity. Every second, 4 million tons of hydrogen are destroyed in explosions that start somewhere near the core where the temperature is 55 million degrees Fahrenheit. Listen to this, just to connect it to our world in space. More energy than man has used since the dawn of civilization is radiated from this normal star in one second. And then it ended with this, the Earth's entire oil, coal, and wood reserves would fuel the sun's energy output to the Earth alone for only a few days. It is a massive, powerful thing. And yet, I would just remind you, as intriguing as that is, and kind of just mentally stimulating this morning, who's behind that? And how much greater is his power? Well, let's be logical today. Well, let's be reasonable today. And so this orchestrating of all things in our world demands a verdict. It demands a verdict that God is real. Because of all the ways that God has chosen to affirm his existence, the burden of proof 
does not rest upon the theist, that is the one who believes in a God. The burden of proof rests on the atheist. Prove to me there's not a God. Let, let, it, let it push back against the mountain of, in, uh, of evidence uh, that is on our side. I was reading the other day, um, I read a book recently on Neil Armstrong. The title of the book was First Man, and he was the first man to the moon, and, and all the details of that. So I've been kind of thinking in that, that vein recently, just from that book, that biography. But there was a story told just a few years prior to Neil Armstrong landing on uh, the moon of a Russian cosmonaut who returned from space. So they didn't get to the moon first, but they got to space first. And uh, this uh, cosmonaut returned and said that he had not found God. Do you remember reading that or hearing of that? He went to space and said, he's not there. I didn't see him. And with his atheistic perspective and Russian influence and all that was a part of that culture in that day, he claimed boldly and brashly he had not found God. C.S. Lewis, who was living at that time as a contemporary, responded to that uh, loose uh, or kind of sloppy thinking in comment, and he used this analogy. Listen to this. To say that was like Hamlet, if you know Hamlet in some of the, uh, the tragedy written by Shakespeare. It was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. Can you follow the thinking here? This is good. If there is a God, C.S. Lewis said, he would not be another object in the universe that could be put into a lab and analyzed with empirical or measurable methods. He would relate to us in the way that a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We characters might be able to know quite a bit about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put the information about himself into the play. And here is the conclusion. Therefore, in no case could we prove God's existence as if he were an object wholly within our universe like oxygen or hydrogen or an island in the Pacific. God is outside of this world. And we have through his word and through creation and everything around us the reasonable conclusion. There has to be a God. He is real because we see real evidence and revelation uh, that directs us that way. And so we see clearly, as revealed in these three areas, God is real. Now here's the, the application. Why then are we so timid as we talk of our God? Why are we so hesitant to boldly declare God is? And he is, he is holy, but he's also loving, as we're talking about in our small groups. He is, he is, he is. Where is the boldness on our part as those who believe in his existence? All right, number two. Let's talk about for a few minutes now his trinity, the fact that God is triune. He is three in one. Heidi and I, uh, we share a lot of things, and one of the things that we share is our eyes are, are, are failing us as we move through life. I see a few other, you know, four eyes out there, some of you frauds with your contacts in right now. Um, I have them. I wear them some too, but, um, and we're the most intellectual people in the room for the record, Okay. But what's funny is Heidi and I have the opposite. I am nearsighted. So, I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I can't see anything. Like, I have to grab my glasses just to see my phone that's on the side table. I can't see within just my nose barely, you know, with any clarity. She's the opposite. She has to wear glasses to read. So, it, it, between the two of us, we have 20-20 vision, but that doesn't seem to work out so well, you know, as far as our, our perception. Um, I don't know if you watched the Olympics, but I saw, uh, did you see this story? So this, this cracks me up. Somebody said, this is the only part of the Olympics I could relate to. The story is, this is a lady, um, a Canadian swimmer,
who didn't realize she won gold because she wasn't wearing her glasses. So the first picture is of her squinting, and then, hey, I won. And she's <laughs> celebrating that, just rejoicing in what she couldn't perceive. You know, for me, I'm often picture right there as it relates to the Trinity of God. Do you ever almost squint your eyes as you try to process God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? It is, it's something that requires God's uh, revelation. It takes the Spirit to understand it. God is a trinity. And one of the things that is distinctive to Christian theology is this key doctrine. This is a key doctrine of our God. As hard as it is for us to see and understand, it's what distinguishes our God from all other gods, so-called. And the teaching is that God is one being, in essence, and yet three persons. That is, there is one God, and He subsists in three different Persons. And so we have these three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about, first of all, number one, where we see the Trinity taught to us in the Old Testament. Would you go back to Genesis chapter 1? And you're in verse number 1. You notice that it says there in verse 1, in the beginning God. We're going to go later in chapter 1 in just a moment. But where it says in the beginning God, the name that's used there is the name Elohim. Elohim. It is a singular noun with a plural ending. The im that you see on the end of Elohim, if you were looking at this in the Hebrew, as you're reading from right to left, the Hebrew is from right to left instead of left to right, you would see Elohim, and this name is a singular noun with a plural ending. The name im, that ending, is the same we would find with like cherubim, seraphim, a seraph, and then seraphim would be plural, and so God is uh, Elohim. He is dwelling in plurality. So first of all, we see the Trinity in the Old Testament in the plural name of God. Number two, go down to verse number 26 of Genesis 1. You notice that God uses a way of referring to himself that only makes sense if we view him as a triune God, three in one. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you see there he uses number two, plural forms of personal pronouns. So instead of let me or I'm going to, he uses the word us, plural forms of personal pronouns. Go to chapter 11, one other example of this, the Tower of Babel in verse 7 of Genesis 11. Go to, notice this, Genesis 11 and verse 7, go to, let us go down and there confound their language. So let us make man. Number two, let us uh, go down. So we see again these plural forms of the personal pronouns of God. All right, a third one. Go to Numbers, chapter number six. And let's spend just a moment here as well. Numbers, chapter number six, and verse 24. It's interesting how references to God often come in trinities, where there's three kind of prongs to it, and that's what we're looking at today that at least allude to the fact that our God uh, is a trinity. Numbers chapter 6, and if you would please, verse 24. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord, here we are, the second time, make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Then thirdly, verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give the peace. And so we see thirdly in the threefold blessing of Aaron, um, this blessing, the Lord bless thee, the Lord make his face shine upon thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. These, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. At least it's interesting that we find this in three parts. 
And then lastly, Isaiah chapter 6. And we see a fourth, at least foreshadowing or pulling back a bit, if you will, of the veil as to the fact that the God of not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament uh, is a trinity. Isaiah chapter 6, and if you would please look at verse number 8. Are your fingers warmed up yet? Isaiah chapter 6, look if you will at verse number 8. And also Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go up for, notice it, us. Now go back to verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. And then go to verse 3. And one cried unto another, these that are worshiping God, holy and said, one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. How many times is the word holy used? three times. We don't know this for sure, but it's likely that the worship of God in this setting that's being described, it's holy are you Father, holy are you Son, holy are you Holy Spirit, is an acknowledgement of the holiness of all three persons of the Godhead or of the Trinity. And so all three of, or all four of these instances allude to uh, the fact that God is a trinity. Now, it's more direct in the New Testament that we're going to get to in just a moment, but I'm just trying to encourage you this didn't come out of nowhere in the New Testament. Even in the Old, though the Jewish mindset may have missed it at times, we see all three, part, or all three persons uh, that are being described. Now, before we look at the New Testament setting, you say, Pastor, why is it so important that we believe God is a trinity? Can I give you one application of this? It not only helps us make sense of the Old Testament, it also makes our faith distinctive from other teachings about God in a generic sense. Have you ever heard, well, I believe in God, and yet you, you have to kind of work through, but it's not, uh, it's, not, it's not the God that I believe in or the Bible teaches. How do we distinguish uh, our God? Well, the Trinity is one means to do that. Many assume, I don't know that this is true in this room, but many assume that the God that the Muslims worship and the Jews worship and Christians worship is the same God. And I just want to lovingly remind you, those who reject Christ as Messiah, those Jews, those who accept Allah as God, are not trusting in and worshiping the same God as the God of the Bible, right? Amen. And one of the ways that we distinguish or let God distinguish himself is in this doctrine of the Trinity. They do not believe in a triune God. They believe in a mono. Uh, kind of God, a singular God. And so this distinction is crucial. And one of the thing, examples would be, just thinking of, think logically here, when we, and we're talking about God is love, if God was only one person prior to mankind, how is God loving himself affected differently than when there's love shared between the three persons of the Trinity? Is that not in some ways self-love? It, it could be uh, ego uh, kind of focused love. The fact that there was love between the Trinity prior to even mankind existing keeps his love holy, if you can follow that train of thought this morning. And so it distinguishes our God uh, from all other gods. At the same time, our God is not a polytheistic God. Um, the example would be Hinduism. Um, Hinduism would have three kind of primary gods, the Brahma, the Vishnu, and the Shiva, and they, they're, but they're not one. They're, they're often divided or not in agreement or in alignment with one another. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who is three uh, persons. And so as world religions prolificate, prolificate and, and things expand and more religion is coming and going, 
The way to distinguish our faith is to believe in a God who is a trinity. All right, let's spend a few minutes now in the New Testament. Would you go to Matthew chapter 3? So the Old Testament's a bit shadowy in its allusions to the Trinity. The, the New Testament's very direct in what it teaches us about the fact that God is a Trinity. Matthew chapter 3, and if you would please, verse number 16. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So let's talk about where the Trinity is revealed in the New Testament. First, at Christ's baptism. At Christ's baptism. Do you see in verse 16, and Jesus, who is that? God the Son. He comes out of the water and he saw the Spirit. Okay, so now we have Son and Spirit descending like a dove. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who is saying my Son? The Father. You have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. I mean, right out of the gates in the New Testament, God looks like there's three persons here. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fascinating? Can you imagine the Jew hearing that? For the first time, an Old Testament faithful Jew processing what's being revealed there. All right, then go to the end of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 19. Matthew 28 and verse 19. So we see the Trinity alluded to or directly referenced in the Christ baptism. Verse 19 of chapter 28 of Matthew, Go ye therefore... Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Number two, we see the Trinity referenced in the baptism formula. What is to be said over and over? You'll hear me, you'll hear Pastor Dave, you'll hear others that, that, that conduct our baptismal service. I baptize you now, my, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, buried in the lights of his death. There's that, that Trinity acknowledgement. And so to be a faithful follower of Jesus requires identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All right, two more. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. These are just to, re to remove any doubts in your mind that God is a trinity. I'm not saying I can explain it to you. I'm just saying it's true uh, because Scripture is replete. It's full of references. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, thank you for keeping those pages turning. I hear you. Some of you, you're still rustling as I get done reading. That's all right. Sorry about that. 2 Corinthians 13, if you would please, verse 14. And Paul does this several times as he greets or as he closes off a, a commendation to saints that he's writing to. Notice this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. You see all three there again right? You see Jesus, the Son, the love of God, a reference to the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. So thirdly, we see it in the apostolic benediction, the apostles' benediction as he blesses them. By the way, a writer who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he, he knew the Old Testament, and so he was very familiar with the Trinity and, and where it was revealed even prior to this benediction. All right, and then lastly, and the most probably direct one would be in John 14. Let's go there for a moment. The last one under these New Testament evidences, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 16. And Jesus here is talking 
and communicating truths to his disciples just prior to his ascension, death, burial, and uh, resurrection and ascension. Look here in John 14 and verse 16. Christ here says this, and I, there's the Son, will pray the Father, and he shall give you another, Comforter, capital C, that he may abide with you forever. Those of us in small groups Wednesday and today, we talked about the idea that the Spirit is the evidence of God's tender heart and activity in our lives. And so lastly, we see it being alluded to here in the teachings of Jesus. You can't have Jesus, who is God the Son, without, and all that he teaches. You can't subscribe to that without accepting that he is a part of the Trinity. To reject or to underappreciate the doctrine of the Trinity is to lose the entire New Testament. You can't have all those comforting passages and great truths and things that you subscribe to and share with others if you're not willing to yield to this doctrine. All right, let me give you an illustration. This is the best one I've seen. I I didn't bring today three forms of water or an egg that I'm going to break in front of you or other things. This is the best way I can think of to illustrate it where it talks about on the inside, God, and then you see He is the Father, and the Father is God. Uh, Son is God, and God is Son. Uh, this goes both ways. Holy Spirit is God, and God is Holy Spirit. But I love also how it adds that outside those yellow lines, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and vice versa. I love that illustration. If you'd like, I could give that to you later. But there's the internal core that holds them together, The outside is what uh, distinguishes them from each other. The Father was in heaven at the moment that Jesus was hanging upon the cross. The Spirit had yet to come until Jesus ascended. We see clear, unique places they occupy and activities that they engage in. And I think one of the fascinating things of heaven that we'll study about in a few weeks is where will they be in that setting? Um, You will not see them in a glob. You'll not see them just in one that they will each have a role, and especially the Holy Spirit. I'm fascinated to even just kind of theorize about what his role will be in uh, in eternity. There's a few allusions to it that we may talk about, but this to me is the best way of illustrating uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Someone said this, the doctrine of the Trinity must be divinely revealed. It's so absurd from a human standpoint that no one could have invented it. This is something only God could come up with or God could reveal to us. This is not just an antiquated teaching or some bizarre thinking of one individual. And someone said this of the doctrine of the Trinity, to explain it, try to explain it and you will lose your mind. But try to deny it and you will lose your soul. You do know that all three parts of the Trinity are the only reason you know Christ or that you can know Christ today. They're unique and precious and significant, though it may be difficult for us to fully understand, we need to, by faith, receive it. All right, let me ask you this question, and then we'll move to our third point today. When you pray to God, all right, so as we prayed a few minutes ago, Brother Josh led us in prayer, Um, you prayed to God hopefully this week, we sang to the Lord today, Um, you were in the Word this week. When you think of God... What does he look like? That's kind of a weird question, but I'm asking you because there's a point to this. What do you think of when you think of God? I said it's the most important thing about you, but like what does he look like or what is his, what's his posture? Like is he leaning into you and is he, what do you see in your mind's eye? And here's, here's what I want to submit to you. I don't know that I'm after a specific descriptor. 
I'm just saying we all tend to think of one person of the Trinity more than the others. Either you think more of the Father and maybe some aspects or characteristics of who He is, or maybe it's the Son, you pray more with Jesus in mind, or maybe the Spirit, either the way you were raised or just how you feel or process things. One part of the Trinity tends to be what we, we, we emphasize in our relationship with God. And here's what I'm trying to remind you of. All of it is meant for us. All three are meant to be a part of our relationship with God. And I even have been working in my own mind, which do I lean toward? Uh, when I'm emphasizing God is holy and righteous and kind of removed from things and, and His purity, I tend to think, I think, more of the Father. When I think of felt needs or empathy, I tend to think a little more of Jesus. And when I'm moved by something, I think that's when the Spirit maybe is more prominent in my mind. But to relate to God with only one person of the Trinity is at the expense of all that God wants you to know and experience in your relationship with Him. And so let it all, as revealed in Scripture, grow in your heart between you and Him. All right, thirdly, let's talk about thirdly, God is great. So God is real. Number two, He is triune. He is three persons in one. Let's talk about now His greatness. And these attributes that we're about to list are ones that we will never possess. We're not going to have them here. And even in a glorified body, these characteristics we will never aspire to or we will never receive. These are what make God uniquely God. Uh, moms especially or dads in the room who have teenagers or have had teenagers, have you ever had your teenagers say to you, like you say, hey, we're going to you know, do something really exciting like rake the leaves here in a few weeks or... Uh, you're going to clean the whole house, and they say to you, oh, great. What do they mean by that? Woohoo! you know, let's go. Like, where's... No, when they say, oh, great, they don't mean, oh, great, right? It's a sarcastic expression. Can I ask you a question today? When you read in the bulletin or you heard last week, we're going to study about God. Like, which great... What was the tone in your great? Was it, oh, great. You know, it's, it's, it's God. You know, here we go with the God thing. What about, I want something unique or new or fascinating. Can I remind you, our God is great. And I, and I can't tell you how glorious it is to be able to talk on Him, to reflect upon Him, and to let Him stir and move us even uh, this morning. And I think the reason our theology is not what it should be practically is because our God is too small. Your God, can I challenge you today? I think He's probably too small in your mind's eye. He's not too small in reality. But in your understanding, and often in mine as well, he's not as great uh, as he desires to be and as he is. Um, I, I would just tell you, I was just talking to the Lord before I came out today. I, feel, I just feel inadequate on this study to try to teach to you God and to represent God faithfully and trying to just do it through Scripture. And it brought back to mind in some of my seminary studies, I remember studying about a group of people called the Masoretes. Have you ever heard of these folks? They would have, before Gutenberg's press, they would have copied the Bible, primarily the Old Testament, um, from one worn-out copy to a new before they lost the copy and the accuracy of it. And, and just the phrase that I was just thinking on this just a few minutes ago and quickly referenced it in my notes from the past, and they were talking about what the Masoretes, these scribes, would do to be careful with the Word of God and specifically the name of God as they would write it. Listen to this description. The copyist uh, must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. They didn't want to have to stop mid 
word and have to reload the pen. They wanted to make sure they had a good bead on that pen that could finish the thought, the word. And then listen to this. This is interesting, fascinating. And should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. I love that. They're writing the name of God. I don't care who else is in the room and what else is being said. This is the most important thing right now. Is God that great to you? We've got a lot of greats in our day, don't we? That want us to think they're great and others think they're great. Man, they pale in comparison to the greatness of our God. And so why is God so great? How do we appreciate that more fully? We'll go back to chapter 4 in John. You're already there. And look at verse 24. John chapter 4 and verse 24, let's speak for a few moments about the great attributes of our God that help us rise above maybe the not-so-great things we're dealing with today and not-so-great folks that maybe at times disappoint and fail us and even our own shortcomings, the greatness of God. Look in John 4 and verse 24, the Bible says this, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Number one, jot this down, he is great in spirit. Why is God so great? It's because He is a spirit. God is not composed of matter and does not possess a physical nature. Uh, Wherever you see in Scripture the hand of God, the the, the backside of God, those are um, what are called anthropomorphisms. They're basically God giving us a human way of doing something that we can understand. But God doesn't literally have a physical hand. His ear, it talks about, is not... Uh, you know, dull. His arm is not uh, shortened. Those are, those are expressions. God, in reality, He is a spirit. He does not possess a physical nature. What does that mean for us uh, who believe that? It means that God does not have any limitations of a physical body. Aren't you thankful for that? He's not aging. He's, he's, not, he's not limited to one place or situation. He's not bound to f- uh, a physical body. Furthermore, he is indestructible. Our bodies are breaking down. At least mine is, is yours. God is not bound to that. He's beyond that. He's bigger than that. He's greater than that. And so he cannot be destroyed. He is not material in nature. Therefore, listen to me, all idolatry, building and statue, worshiping something in nature, is counter everything of who God is. He is a spirit. And often we forget that in our own walk and relationship with Him. We get stuck on physical things and places and people. He's above and beyond all of that. He is great in spirit. All right, go back to the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 20. Let's spend just a moment here as well. Exodus 20, as He gives us the Ten Commandments as we know them. But notice just the, couple, the first few verses of this chapter, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 20, and let's begin in verse 1. So God is great in spirit. Notice a second attribute of his greatness that is alluded to here in Genesis 20. And God spake all these words saying, Genesis 21, now verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which had brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, God is great in his personality. We see him manifesting a will. Um, he's expressing a desire. He's expressing actions that he is doing. He is, he is a personality. Uh, and we see it through different names in Scripture. We all know the Jehovah Jireh and all these different names of God that express different things that God does and is. 
And throughout Scripture, we see him being active in personality, active in knowledge, active in feeling, active in willing things, active in uh, a large range of different uh, activities. And so we see that God is a personality. Um, I just want to remind us today that God is not inanimate. When you pray to God, you're not going to some bureaucracy. When you open his word, it's not he's at an arm's length just kind of insulating himself from you, and he's more of a, an institution than an individual. I think we've lost that, the personal, intimate relationship with God in our day. He is a real person. And I, may I remind you today that our relationship with God is not a one-way street. It's not just, okay, here they come again with their prayer. He's pursuing us. He's wooing us. He wants, today, you're here because he doesn't want you just to hear me. He wants you to hear from him. He's a person. He's a living, reciprocating being. And I think our tendency is to treat God kind of like, may the force be with you, okay? Some of you, that'll resonate, all right? That's not my wheelhouse, but I've heard that some of you, that resonates with you, okay? Some of you are smirking at me right now. But God is a, he's a force, or there's kind of just this idea he is, he's a, a, a means to an end. Instead of he is the means, uh, he is the end. A relationship with him is the goal. He is great in personality. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. We talk about heaven all the time and who we're going to see when we get there. That's preceded us. The first person we ought to all want to see, and I'm telling you we will want to see in that moment, is him. And if I bump into someone that's preceded me, hey, let's go see him. He's the person it's all about. Is your theology viewing God uh, in that way? Is practically, it's a he walks with me and he talks with me. Is it that kind of a God? He wants that. He yearns for that. All right, Hebrews 11. And if you would, verse number 6. There's a third great attribute of God that should just warm our hearts today and uh, encourage us in our relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 11 And if you would please, verse number 6, Hebrews 11 and verse number 6. So he is great in spirit. Number two, he is great in his personality in ways we never will be. Notice thirdly in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Thirdly, jot this down, he is great in life. His existence, he is great in life. We must believe that he is. Um, we talked about the existence of God. My question to you is, don't, do you not just believe that God at one point is or existed? Do you believe he is today? He is the self-existent one. He is the eternal one. Our God does not derive his life from anything or anyone from an external standpoint. Over and over in Scripture, the adjective used to describe our God is, He is eternal. He is eternal. He is eternal. He just is. And I debated about giving you some other references. You can probably think of some, but where God says, I am, right? He just says, I am. I am that I am. I just am. There's no beginning. There's no end. He is, He just lives. He just exists. And so this greatness of life, intrinsically, He needs no one. He needs nothing. And I think what that does for us, I've been thinking about this, is it frees us from the belief that God needs us. Um, what do I mean by that? I think sometimes we feel like God has, he, he needs us. If he's going to do his will, if he's going to 
stay relevant, if he's going to accomplish what he set out to do. Instead, God has chosen us not because he needs us, but because he wants us. Um, God could have easily bypassed us, couldn't he? He said, you know what? And, and not just bypassed us at the beginning. I'm saying by now because we just keep failing him, don't we? At least I do. I doubt him. I question him. I drag my feet. I get ahead of him. God wants relationship with us. He doesn't need it. He wants it. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need something. He just simply is. And while we live in a world of contingencies and kind of the if, well, if this happens, then maybe this will also happen. There's no reason to say God will if. He doesn't, there's, there's no if that has to happen for God to do what he said he's going to do. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anybody. Uh, what a comfort. What a recalibrating of our hope today that he uh, is alive all on his own. And here's where I see this coming into play practically in our theology. I hear this. I hear it from my own lips. Sometimes I act like God being able to accomplish his will and everything to work out okay in the end depends on if we are revived as people or we're passive and apathetic and carnal and I feel like things aren't going so good right now. Do you? God is above all that. He's beyond all that. He doesn't need his people to be something or not be something. He's as alive and able today as he's ever been. The moment he spoke the worlds into existence, as we talked about a few minutes ago, the moment that the church just came alive and graves opened up and Jesus conquered the grave, he is that alive today. He just is. And so our theology needs to practically live that out with great confidence and humility. All right, last one here. Go to Psalm 139. Uh, Two more. Psalm 139, and if you would please, verse 7. Psalm 139. And if you would, please, verse number seven. And we have a familiar text of a key attribute of our God. I love this text. Psalm 139. And if you would, please, verse number seven. Psalm 139. And let's begin in verse number seven. The psalmist asked these rhetorical questions. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And the word hell there would have more the idea of grave. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be a light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and light are both alike to thee. Number four, not only is he great in his person and in his spirit and in his life, fourthly, great in infinity is the word there. Any of you have a cartoon that comes to mind there? To where and beyond, to infinity and beyond. I remember uh, as kids, it would be, you know, well, I have this much of this, and, and then it would be to infinity, you know, double infinity, you know, infinity, like we throw that word around like we actually know what we're talking about. God alone uh, is infinite. In terms of space, God is omnipresent, would be the word, or he's everywhere at once. Isn't that unbelievable? Like, we could just stop there the rest of the service and just talk about that. Have you ever been somewhere that you doubted God was there? There's nowhere you can go that God not already is there. That's unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable to me, and yet we feel lonely, and then we make decisions based on that, and we commiserate our way into whatever instead of believing that maybe others aren't there, but God uh, is always there. He is infinite in his omnipresence. 
There's no place where he cannot be found or where he cannot be accessed. I think that's the other glorious part of that. I can access him. He's not just there, but I have access to him. He is infinite. God can be in countless places and involved in many different situations simultaneously. It also speaks of his understanding, his omniscience. He knows all things. He is uh, infinite. There was an interesting story in the news a few weeks ago. Do you remember back, I think it's been maybe two or three years ago, that Amazon was advertising they were going to do delivery by drone? Do you remember that, kind of that buzz that was around that? My brother is in the UK, and that was where their pilot program was going to be. And they had all these promos, they had ads, they would let people come in and see kind of how they were doing all the logistics of that. And a Wired magazine just recently put out an article that said this, Amazon has triggered mass redundancies and transfers as it winds down a huge part of its UK drone delivery business. Just five years ago, Prime Air's UK operations were at the center of a frenzied public relations campaign. And, the, and now it's just crickets. They figured out, and I don't know, maybe someday they'll revisit it, but to be everywhere and to deliver everywhere and to get everything everywhere, even Amazon's figured out being infinite is a bit of a challenge. Can I just remind you that our God is not that way? No matter what others say and when they mock us and when they marginalize us, we believe that God is able because he is infinite. What a great attribute of our God. He knows every truth. Listen, he even knows what's possible that we don't even know about yet. Um, think of believers that would have read these texts 100 years ago, that now things we know that are possible. God knew that 100 years ago. The things that are beyond the horizon in our own minds and hearts, God already knows them today. He knows everything. And so there's a hope in that, his wisdom, his omniscience, his omnipresence. God's will will never be frustrated or underpowered. It's not going to become feeble or weak. Maybe this last application of this, I think sometimes for me, there are places that are extra special. There are seasons of life where God and me just seem closer. And sometimes some of you are maybe in this church and it used to be a different church or something's changed in your family. Um, you're not maybe in the same home you once were. I don't know what's changed physically. And I remind you, God is in the new place too. He's just as faithful and just as good and just as infinite as where he was with you in seasons past. Don't don't forget that. Live in light of that. He is infinite. All right, the last one. Go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter number three. So find Matthew, that helps you, and then go back to your left just a little bit, maybe one page or two. Malachi chapter three and verse six. There's a fifth attribute of God that alone makes him great. Malachi chapter three and verse number six. In the midst of all of these dialogues between God and his people and areas that they need to rethink and reassess their relationship with him, in verse 6 of Malachi 3, God says this, For I am the Lord, I change not. Lastly, God is great in constancy. He is constant. He is consistent. We can count upon him. God cannot increase in anything. He cannot decrease. He is just perfect. If he could increase, he would not be today perfect. If he could increase, he would not fully be God. There is no uh, quantity or qualitative change to him. God just is. 
Um, and I, I hear this regularly. Well, I don't know that, that really that's the thinking nowadays on whatever the given issue is. God does not change his mind, does he? It, it gets more uncomfortable to hold the line on certain things. I'll give you that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't appease and doesn't align with certain thinking in our day. But God doesn't change his laws. That would be maybe the negative side. He also doesn't change his promises. To be faithful still matters. To, to put God first still makes a difference. And, and so his, implant, his plans, his intentions are consistent. He doesn't grow antiquated. He doesn't grow irrelevant as time goes by. He is constant. One author said this, The heart's hunger is infinite, which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything that is merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never seems to stop us from trying. There's only one thing that's going to fulfill us, and that is the greatness of God. Our heart wants something great, and that thing we want that's so great, there's only one person that qualifies for that, that can satisfy that desire. It is our God. May we reject the hopeless, willful version of postmodern Christianity where we've lost our sense of the incomparable greatness of God. We go to other places and other people to find greatness, to be wowed and to be awed by that thing or that person. May we return to God, the God who is so great. And you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again, not original with me. I don't know who I heard first say it, but we don't need smaller problems. We don't need smaller problems. We need a greater God. And God is great. God is great. Would you allow that to soak in today as you process his revelation? All right, lastly, let's spend a few minutes in God is good. So far, we're on schedule, so here we go. All right, number four, God uh, is good. God is good. These would be attributes that we can possess, at least in part. So it may not be to the perfection level that our God has them, but these are things that he gives us access to that we can imitate, we can uh, integrate into our lives and hearts uh, with his help. Isn't it interesting, have you ever heard the expression, an act of God? Like, I don't know if you, if you process, like I have a good friend in Pennsylvania that they just, their basement and their house and their church just got just tons of rain this past week with the remnants of the hurricane all the way up the east uh, coast. Um, but acts of God, when you hear acts of God, is that God just loving on us? No, acts of God, isn't it interesting, are descriptions of what? For at least insurance companies, like negative things, detrimental things. And I think that exposes in some part what we often attribute to God. We would never say God is not good, but I think in our practical living, there are times that we question His goodness. Uh, we're going to get to this, <laughs> excuse me, in our reading in our small groups uh, that are part of the book study. The author said this later in, in the book. He says, if you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain my composure will likely be grouchiness. Like if you just just poked me or tried to prompt me, and I just had to respond in the moment. In contrast, he said, if, God, if you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely from him is blessing. Like God, God his, his very nature, he longs to be good. No matter how you feel or what your, uh, your, your circumstances may say to the contrary, God is good. He is always good. Do we believe that today? And are we willing to testify of that to others. All right, let's talk about a few areas of evidence of his goodness. How can we be confident that God is good? Number one, in your notes there, he is good in his purity. He is good in his purity. And if you would go to Isaiah chapter number, or James chapter one. 
James chapter 1. For a second, that J looked like an I. Must be, I must need the other glasses now, too. I thought I was not struggling on that front. James chapter 1, and let's look, if you will, at verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13. So God is good first in his purity. Um, the other day I saw this picture. I think this is a good illustration of this. I guess my first question is, can you tell what that is uh, when you look at that? Um, it is actually the eye, eyeball of a bee. Um, and somebody with their high, you know, just their phone or some better camera, they zoomed in on the eye of a bee, probably a safe distance if I had to guess. Um, but the, the person that posted the picture said this, the more you zoom in on me, the less impressed you are. However, the more you zoom in on God or his work, the more impressed you are with him. Like God is pure. And like you get closer to me, you see my flaws. Those who know me best in the room know I'm less perfect than maybe the rest. You may assume I'm not, but they have, they have material, okay? They could fill you in. My kids and my wife and our leadership here, they, they know me. Um, with God, the more we zoom in, we see more of his pureness. He's even more perfect than we ever thought. And, and in his creation, the same thing, the intricate detail, the balance, the things that he handcrafts. And so he is good in uh, his purity. All right, look here in James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Here it is, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Then look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Number one, under that, he is pure first in his holiness. So he is pure in that he is holy. Um, one of the things I find striking about other religions is that their gods, so called, ask them to do things that are unholy. There are times even in Greek mythology and otherwise where the God participates in unholy things with their worshipers. Our God is holy. Um, he, is, he is always holy, and unlike all of the religions, this is a claim of our God. He is perfect. He is perfection. And as such, He is the standard for our own moral character and motivation. Uh, we don't settle as Christians. We strive to be holy even as He is holy, as First Peter reminds us as we studied uh, this summer. And so his holiness makes him pure. He is good. He is pure. All right, Deuteronomy 32. Let's go back there for a moment in verse 4. There's a second opposite side of the coin, if you will, of God's purity. First is holiness. Notice now verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, and if you would please, verse 4. He, this God that's referenced back in verse 3, is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. Notice that, all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Number two, now is he pure in holiness, he's also pure in justice. He is a just God. So here would be the opposite side of the coin. He is holy. That means he has a high standard for himself. He never, he never fails. He never falters morally. He also requires other moral agents. That would be people that they will be held accountable to be pure as well. He doesn't let someone skate. He doesn't let something slip by his, his sovereign holy eye. He is going to be just in all things. This means he administers his law fairly. He doesn't show favoritism or partiality. 
You're not going to get off because of who you are, and you're not going to you're not going to have to pay more than you, you should or deserve because of who you are not. Um, it doesn't matter your station in life or your, your uh, specific situation in life. He gives it out impartially. He is a just God. Now, the one caveat to that would be that the wheels of justice sometimes grind slowly. So don't doubt God's justice just because you haven't seen something resolved yet. He is faithful. He will follow through. He is good in purity uh, in his justice. All right, a couple more as we finish today. Look, if you will, in Numbers 23. Can we go there for a moment? So you're in Deuteronomy. Just go back one book. Numbers 23 and verse 19. This is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite verse in Numbers. Uh, I don't know if you've read through Numbers, but it might be a book that you have to you know, prop your eyes open just a bit at times to read, but this is a great verse. Numbers 23, and if you would please, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? All right, number two. So he's good in purity with those subpoints we discussed. Number two, he is good in his integrity. He is good in his integrity. Uh, this would mean he is faithful, he is truthful, he is genuine. That means he is true. Um, he will be proved uh, faithful in that he tells the truth, and that ultimately we will see that he follows through on what he has said. Um, one of the things I get sick of in our day, and probably you do as well, is everything so artificial. Would you own that? Would you be, you know, with, with uh, camera filters and skewing things, and then you have reality shows? Are you kidding me? It's like the most unreal thing I've ever even heard of. I cannot stand them, okay? And everybody that knows me knows that. They're not real. Did you know that? I hope you do. If not, now you do. All right, sorry to ruin that for you. But everything's so artificial. God is not. He's the real deal, as we would say. Everything he says, everything he is, he's not putting on a facade with you. He's not going to bait and switch you and disappoint you someday. I I think heaven's going to have a realness to it. Not to get ahead of ourselves. Is heaven going to have doorknobs? I've always believed it will. We'll reach out and grab it and open it and close it and welcome someone in that we can hug and touch. It's a real place. God is real. And so not only is he real, we need to allow him to be real in our real time and space. Just yesterday, I was at my parents. We had a little family gathering. And it was interesting. Mom and dad had on the wall, they had several uh, pictures of our family. Kind of just, we had a little reunion on my dad's side of the family, cousins from Georgia came up and just fun together. But they had on, on the wall, I saw it, Ezra twelve twenty five. this part of that verse, where it says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. I needed to see that yesterday. My parents wake up and look at that in the morning. Uh, the reminder that God is faithful, He has integrity, you will not go wrong trusting in Him. All right, lastly, I wish we could spend more time there. 1 John 4, and if you would please look at verse 8. And there's a third attribute of our God that makes him so good, uh, unlike any other. And 1 John 4 gives us that. 1 John 4, and if you would please, verse 8. 1 John 4 and verse number 8. As you're turning there, have you ever heard the expression before, your emotional support animal? Any of you have an emotional support animal? Um, 
our dog, you know, gets so excited. We're just coming home like we do every day, and they're just like giddy. And some of you have that, or a cat or something, and they're just, and it, it just, it, it, I have to admit, it, it's actually therapeutic to see someone excited that I'm coming home today, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding on that, dear. But anyway, uh, someone said this about, emo- they said, my emotional support animal is a chicken. Any of you have a chicken that's your emotional support? They said this, a four-piece with a biscuit. That's my emotional support. Some of you are now offended by that, okay? But just what makes you feel love? What, what is it that makes you feel that? Well, notice here in verse number 8 of 1 John 4, who it is that is ultimately love. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Notice this, for God is love. Not he has love, he offers love. God is love. Lastly, he is good in love. And this would encompass things we haven't had time to study, like His grace, His mercy. He gives us not what we deserve, but what we need. Aren't you thankful for that? Because He loves us. That's the God we have. He is that good. Um, and so may I just ask you or prompt you this, this, this morning on this aspect, is your God, the God you worship, is He good? You view Him as good. If you don't, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. If he's capricious and he's, he's condemning and he's messing with us and he's playing games with us, that is not the God of the Bible. Come back to him. Would you admit where you've allowed your circumstances and people around you to produce a hardened, jaded view of God? Would you admit that? Would you allow his goodness to draw you back and to draw you closer in your relationship with him? All right, let's end today in James 2. James 2 in verse 17. This would be the sobering challenge for each of us as it relates to how we believe in God and what that does for us in our relationship with Him. James 2. And as you're turning there, I don't know if you ever had this conversation with your kids as I have, where you'll ask them when our boys were younger, hey, what did you study in church today? Like, and I'm not checking up on the teacher, I'm just trying to make sure they paid attention. And there's like this awkward pause, which then the parent knows they were out cold or they were messing around or whatever. And then they'll pause for a minute, and two responses. One is they'll say, we study about the Bible. You're like, come on. Or then the really fallback is, we study about God. You know, and you're like, come on, guys. Like, let's, let's be honest here. Can I just tell you today, I think a lot of us kind of view God that way. It's kind of this generic, uh, at a distance. And I just want to challenge you, that's more serious than you may think. And James here confronts that. Look at verse 17 of James 2. And here's where we'll land today. Even so faith if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. All right, so he's talking about the relationship between faith and works. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show show thee my faith by my works. Then this sobering verse in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. And, and, And the writer here, James, is not actually commending him. There's a bit of almost a, a facetiousness or a Almost a sarcasm here. Thou doest well. Notice how well is he doing. The devils also believe and tremble. A man's faith that is only mental assent, which is what I see a lot of in our day as it relates to God. Oh yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. But it's making no difference in their life. That is not faith that's alive. It's not faith in a God who is alive. It is not sufficient. Yes, we must believe in the existence of God, but it is not enough. It is not sufficient. Even the demons believe. We'll study about angels next week. 
in the existence of God. They shudder at their eventual punishment. They believe the fact, but they do not surrender to the person. This is not saving faith. See, when a person truly believes in God, it involves a commitment of spirit and soul and body, our own trinity, if you will. And this commitment in turn is what changes our life. It's what shows that we truly do have faith in God. What is your practical theology and what is mine? Do I truly believe in God in a way that's changing me and growing me for his glory and honor? Here's the question and we're done. Will you choose to fully understand and live in light of God's reality, God's trinity, God's greatness, and God's goodness? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today.